Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dale Denwold. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, Oklahoma tribes are pressing to recover their ancestors' remains from the University of Alabama. Joining us today is Indigenous Affairs reporter Molly Young. Some Native American tribes now based in Oklahoma have ancestral homelands in the Deep South. Molly, you reported that 19th century archaeologists were digging up grave sites and collecting both human remains and the objects buried with them. Why? So this is something that started, um, you know, when the U.S. was expanding um, west and tribes were being forced to Oklahoma and out of their homelands. And there became this large myth that Native Americans were vanishing. They would be replaced by white settlers. And so as a result, uh, many experts told me that that really started this um, fury to collect artifacts and even remains of um, Native Americans and so they could be studied in, in, um, you know, in sort of a pseudoscientific way. And that's something that continued throughout, you know, the 1900s and even in up until the 60s and 70s, it still was a fairly common practice. So they're exhuming these bodies that had been buried and, and supposedly without any permission from the families of that uh, deceased person or of their tribe. Where are those remains and burial items today? So those remains often were collected either by professional archaeologists, anthropologists, or even just people who own land and knew that they had a, a gravesite on the land. And so over time, those remains and objects that were buried with them ended up in state schools. A lot of universities have these types of holdings as well as art museums, historical museums, and even um, private collections. Now, who are the affected tribes that we're talking about here? And what are they doing to repatriate their ancestors' remains? So in this specific case, um, we are as you mentioned, we're looking at the southern states where specifically Muscogean speaking tribes trace their heritage. And there are many um, tribes today that trace their common ancestry to Alabama and Mississippi. And those tribes in Oklahoma are some of the largest tribes based in the state today, including the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Muscogee, and the Seminole. And that's just in Oklahoma. There are um, other tribes tribes also throughout the South that have that common heritage. And um, what they're doing is going through a legal process known as the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And so that allows tribes to advocate for the return of their ancestors 
Um, institutions are supposed to disclose the remains and the objects that they have in their collections. And then with that disclosure, tribes can say that they are connected to those specific remains. And under that act, then the institutions are supposed to return them to tribes. So this is a problem not just in the South, but across the country. Dozens of universities are working with tribes to identify and repatriate archaeological artifacts. But the University of Alabama has responded differently when tribes come knocking. How differently are they approaching the issue? Yeah, so that's a good question. What I what I've learned is that, you know, often, especially at this point, um, the NAGPRA law is 30 years old, that institutions really have a pretty formalized process for how this should work, that they're working with tribes and learning from their collections. So if they don't know what they have, well, the experts are actually the tribes themselves. So by working with tribes, you really learn a lot more. And um what they've said the University of Alabama is doing, and, and they've um, presented about more than 100 pages of evidence to a federal review committee showing this, is just really refusing to have those types of meaningful conversations. So looking at it from a way that the remains that the University of Alabama holds, specifically those that were um, collected from a site known as Moundville, are not related to any modern living um, tribe. So that's their justification for not turning over the remains, that these tribes can't prove this deceased person is related to them? Right, that there's a break in, in um, you know, the tribes that we know today and then the um, indigenous groups that were living at Moundville. And so... The university has said that over time it has agreed that it will eventually repatriate those remains collected from Moundville, the human remains. But one point of contention remains that the university has said it will not repatriate the items that each person was buried with. And that's, you know, really a critical issue for the tribes because, you know, each person was buried with items that was either important to them or um, their relatives. And the tribes are really interested in reconnecting um, each person with those items and then ultimately repatriating them. And so by saying that the remains are not culturally affiliated to any tribe today, that is sort of a, um, you know, a part of the law that gives institutions more flexibility to retain the funerary objects. And the University of Alabama, for instance, operates a museum on the Moundville site where those objects are on display. You mentioned earlier that this university has refused to really have these meaningful conversations with the tribes and how to go about this repatriation process. I mean, is there anything that can be done to make the university comply? So that's one of the the parts of the law that has really frustrated um, some advocates. And that's that, you know, it doesn't have a lot of teeth. So while the law is clear that institutions need to work towards repatriating remains and funerary objects, you know, there's not a lot of um, methods to to force that compliance. Experts I've spoke with have said there there are some steps available to tribes and, and maybe um, 
the one that might be the next step is pursuing a federal court case if if there is no resolution. But of course, no, that's super expensive and no one really wants to do that. So um, ultimately, I think everyone just really wants to to work with the university um, towards repatriation. Now, one thing that really stood out to me in your story, and um, I'm not sure this is so much a question as uh, maybe just like to get your, your thoughts on this, but tribal advocates have said that universities' reluctance to work with the tribes constitutes racism and institutional arrogance. And one person, surprisingly to me, pointed out that there are more dead native ancestors in boxes on school property than there are natives in their own classrooms. <laughs> what does that mean for this argument? So, you know, I think that's underpinning this whole conversation, and that's um, the Muscogean-speaking tribes, specifically throughout the South, were forcibly removed from those states and, um, you know, eventually arrived many in Oklahoma, but some in Texas or Louisiana, um, Florida. And they don't have a critical voice, a voice at the table often in these conversations um, because they were removed from the state. And so, you know, they're trying to reestablish their connection, but it's it's really difficult for them when they don't have a lot of representation in the states themselves at this point. And um, kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier, one of the experts that I spoke with was Suzanne Shon Harjo, and um, she was one of the um, main architects of the NAGPRA law itself. And she really pointed out that when these institutions say that these items or remains have no cultural affiliation, just the level of arrogance they're applying to the situation because the experts in cultural affiliation are the tribes themselves. So when you're choosing not to involve indigenous experts and historians in making those determinations, you're just cutting out, you know, the experts from the conversation entirely. So what did these tribes mean when they say repatriate? I mean, how how do the tribes approach repatriation once these institutions turn over the remains? Right. So it's different for each tribe. Um, many tribes are figuring out that process on a case-by-case basis. Um, as one scholar told me, you know, this is all still fairly new. Um, no Native community chose to have its ancestors um, dug up. And so figuring out how to approach repatriation is definitely something that varies by each tribe, is a full community process, and often is different for every case. Sometimes tribes will seek to um, rebury remains and objects um, on their reservations. For the case of many Oklahoma tribes, that were removed from their homelands, they may seek land in their ancestral homeland to do that. But it really is just a, you know, case-by-case approach. Now, switching gears a little bit uh, to another story that you wrote with Jana Hayes about how natives celebrate Thanksgiving. Considering the origins of a holiday can bring up painful memories of colonization and relocation. Uh, what have you learned about the traditions that some folks are following today in the Native community during Thanksgiving? Yeah, sure. So we um, reached out to many tribes and um, 
communities across the state and learn that there's just a really diverse way that um, Indigenous peoples are recognizing the holiday today in Oklahoma. Many do see it as a day to give thanks and um, without giving thanks, of course, for that painful history of colonization, but just as a day to get together with family and a time to really um, reflect. And they point to how their own tribal ceremonies for hundreds of years often also incorporated the same types of themes and purpose with you know, being thankful for the harvest and for the broader community. And so how recognizing that today is still an extension of their own cultures as well. And many tribes also recognize the day after Thanksgiving as Native American Heritage Day, which I believe is also federally recognized. So that's another way that tribes can Um, honor their own heritage as well. And how are tribes trying to get rid of the misconceptions around Thanksgiving um, when they broach the subject in schools specifically? Education is just so important. I know that Oklahoma City schools, for instance, are working on curriculum that any school can use that tries to be, um, to provide an accurate retelling of the Thanksgiving story and other um, moments in history involving Native Americans. But it's also something that when I spoke with tribal historians or education experts, they say that they often, you know, hear this question. um, My child learned this in school. I know that's wrong. So what can I do about it? So it's often something that, you know, um, historians are talking with parents about just very frequently so that hopefully this these misconceptions can stop being um, taught in schools. Well, Molly, we thank you so much for joining us this week and, and taking us through this really interesting story with all this historical context as well. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahomans' subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in The Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.